0: Welcome to the Huberman Lab Podcast, where we discuss science and science-based tools for everyday life. I'm Andrew Huberman, and I'm a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford School of Medicine. My guests today are Mark Zuckerberg and Dr. Priscilla Chan. Mark Zuckerberg, as everybody knows, founded the company Facebook. He is now the CEO of Meta, which includes Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and other technology platforms. Dr. Priscilla Chan graduated from Harvard and went on to do her medical degree at the University of California, San Francisco. Mark Zuckerberg and Dr. Priscilla Chan are married and the co-founders of the CZI or Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, a philanthropic organization whose stated goal is to cure all human diseases. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is accomplishing that by providing critical funding not available elsewhere, as well as a novel framework for discovery of the basic functioning of cells cataloging all the different human cell types, as well as providing AI or artificial intelligence platforms to mine all of that data to discover new pathways and cures for all human diseases. The first hour of today's discussion is held with both Dr. Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg, during which we discuss the CZI and what it really means to try and cure all human diseases. We talk about the motivational backbone for the CZI that extends well into each of their personal histories. Indeed, you'll learn quite a lot about Dr. Priscilla Chan who has, I must say, an absolutely incredible family story leading up to her role as a physician and her motivations for the CZI and beyond. And you'll learn from Mark how he's bringing an engineering and AI perspective to the discovery of new cures for human disease. The second half of today's discussion is just between Mark Zuckerberg and me during which we discuss various meta platforms, including, of course, social media platforms and their effects on mental health in children and adults. We also discuss VR, virtual reality, as well as augmented and mixed reality. And we discuss AI, artificial intelligence, and how it stands to transform not just our online experiences with social media and other technologies, but how it stands to potentially transform every aspect of everyday life. Before we begin, I'd like to emphasize that this podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at Stanford. It is, however, part of my desire and effort to bring zero cost to consumer information about science and science-related tools to the general public. In keeping with that theme, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's podcast. Our first sponsor is Element. Element is an electrolyte drink with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means plenty of salt, magnesium, and potassium, the so-called electrolytes, and no sugar. Now. Salt, magnesium, and potassium are critical to the function of all the cells in your body, in particular to the function of your nerve cells, also called neurons. In fact, in order for your neurons to function properly, all three electrolytes need to be present in the proper ratios. And we now know that even slight reductions in electrolyte concentrations or dehydration of the body can lead to deficits in cognitive and physical performance. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams, that's one gram of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. I typically drink Element first thing in the morning when I wake up in order to hydrate my body and make sure I have enough electrolytes. And while I do any kind of physical training and after physical training as well, especially if I've been sweating a lot. If you'd like to try Element, you can go to drink Element. that's LMNT.com slash Huberman to claim a free Element sample pack with your purchase. Again, that's drinkelementlmntcom slash Huberman. And now for my discussion with Mark Zuckerberg and Dr. Priscilla Chan. Priscilla Mark, so great to meet you and thank you for having me here in your home.
1: Oh, thanks for having us on the podcast. Yeah. I'd
0: like to talk about the CZI, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. I learned about this a few years ago when my lab was and still is now at Stanford as a very exciting philanthropic effort that has a truly big mission i can't imagine a bigger mission so maybe you could tell us what that big mission is and then we can get into some of the mechanics of how that big mission can become a reality
2: so uh like you're mentioning in 2015 um we launched the chan zuckerberg initiative and what we were hoping to do at czi was think about how do we build a better future for everyone and looking for ways where we can contribute the resources that we have to bring philanthropically and the experiences that Mark and I have had for me as a physician and educator, for Mark as an engineer, and then our ability to bring teams together to build builders. Um, You know, Mark has uh, been a builder throughout his career, and what could we do if we actually put together a team to build tools, um, do great science, And so within our science portfolio, we've really been focused on what uh, some people think is either an incredibly audacious goal or a inevitable goal. But I think about it as something that will happen if we sort of continue focusing on it, which is to be able to cure, prevent, or manage all disease by the end of the century. All disease. All disease. So that's important, right? And a lot of times people ask, like, which disease? And the whole point is that there is not one disease, And it's really about taking a step back uh, to where I always found the most hope as a physician, which is new discoveries and new opportunities and new ways of understanding how to keep people well come from basic science. So our strategy at CZI is really to build tools, fund science, um, change the way basic scientists can see the world and how they can move quickly in their discoveries and so that's what we launched in uh, 2015. We, we do work in three ways. We uh, fund great scientists. We uh, build tools um, right now, software tools, to help move science along uh, and make it easier for scientists to do their work. And we do science. Um, you mentioned Stanford being an important pillar for our science work. We've built uh, what we call biohubs, institutes where teams can take on grand challenges to do work that wouldn't be possible in a single lab or within a single discipline. And our first biohub was launched in San Francisco, a collaboration between Stanford, UC Berkeley, and UCSF.
0: Amazing. Um, Curing all diseases uh, implies that there will either be a ton of knowledge gleaned from this effort, which I'm certain there will be, and there already has been. We can talk about some of those early successes in a moment. But it also sort of implies that if we can understand some basic operations of diseases and cells that transcend autism, Huntington's, Parkinson's, cancer, and any other disease, that uh, perhaps there are some core principles that would make the big mission a real, reality, so to speak. Um, What I'm basically saying is um, how are you attacking this? Uh, My belief is that the cell sits Mm -hmm. at the center of all discussion about disease, um, given that our body is made up of of cells and different types of cells. So maybe you could um, just illuminate for us a little bit of what the cell is in your mind as it relates to disease and how one goes about understanding disease in the context of cells, because ultimately
1: that's what we're made up of. Yeah, well, let's let's get to the cell thing in a moment, but just even taking a step back from that, you know, we don't think that it's CZI that we're going to cure, prevent, or manage all diseases. The goal is to, to basically give the scientific community and scientists around the world the tools to accelerate the pace of science. And, and we, we spent a lot of time when we were getting started with this looking at the history of science and trying to understand the trends and, and how they've played out over time. And if you look over the, this very long-term arc, most large-scale discoveries are preceded by the invention of a new tool or a new way to see something and it's not just in biology right it's like having a telescope um you know came before a lot of um discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics um but similarly you know the microscope and um and, and just different ways to observe things or different platforms like the ability to do vaccines preceded the ability to kind of cure a lot of different things um so this is sort of the engineering part that you were talking about about building tools. We we view our goal is to try to bring together some scientific and engineering knowledge to build tools that empower the whole field, um, and that's that's sort of the big arc and and a lot of the things that we're focused on, including the the work in in single cell and, and cell understanding, which um, I'll, you know you can you can sure. jump in and, and get into that if you want. But yeah, I think I think we generally. Agree with the premise that if you want to understand this stuff from first principles, um, people study organs a lot, right? They like they study kind of how things present across the body, but there's not a very widespread understanding of how kind of each cell operates, and this is sort of a big part of you know some of the initial work that we tried to do on the human cell atlas and understanding what are the different cells, and um, and there's there's a bunch more work that we want to do to carry that forward, but um, but. Overall, I think when we think about the next ten years here of this long arc to, to try to empower the community to to um, be able to cure, prevent, or, or manage all diseases, we want that. We think that the next ten years should really be primarily about being able to measure and observe more things in, in human biology. There are a lot of limits to that. It's like you want to look at something through a microscope. You can't usually see living tissues because it's hard to you know see through skin or things like that. So there there are a lot of different techniques. Um, that will help us observe different things and this is sort of where the engineering background comes in a bit because i mean it's I, when I think about this is from the perspective of like how you'd write code or something you know the idea of like trying to debug or fix a code base but not be able to like step through the code line by line it's like ne- not going to happen right and at the, at the beginning of any big project that we do um, at meta you know we like to spend a bunch of the time up front just trying to instrument things and understand you know what are we going to look at and how we're going to measure things before um so we know we're making progress and know what to optimize. And this is such a long-term journey that you know, we think that it actually makes sense to take the next ten years to build those kind of tools um, for biology and understanding um, just how the human body works in action. And a big part of that is, is cells. So I don't know. Do you, you want to jump in and talk sure. talk about some yeah. of the efforts?
0: Could, could I uh, just um, interrupt briefly and just ask about the the different um, the different interventions, so to speak, um, that CZI is is in a, unique position to, to bring to the quest to cure all diseases. So I can think of, I mean, I know as a scientist that um, money is necessary, but not sufficient, mm-hmm. right? Like when you have money, you can hire more people, you can try different things. So that, that's critical, but a lot of philanthropy includes money. Um, the other component is, you know, you want to be able to see things as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to know the normal disease process, like what, what is a healthy cell? What's a diseased cell? Are cells constantly being bombarded with, with challenges and then repairing those? And then what we call cancer is just kind of the runaway train of those challenges not being met by the cell itself or something like that. Um, so better imaging tools. And then um, it sounds like there's not just a, a hardware component but a software component this is where AI comes in. So maybe we can, at some point, we, uh, we can break this up into to three different avenues. One is understanding disease processes and healthy processes. We'll lump those together. Then there's hardware. So microscopes, lenses, digital deconvolution, ways of seeing things in bolder relief and more 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 uh, precision. And then there's how to manage all the data. And then I love the idea that maybe AI could do what human brains can't do alone, they manage understanding of the data. Because it's one thing to organize data, it's another to, to say, yeah, oh, you know, you know, you this, as you point out in the analogy with code, that this particular gene and that particular gene are potentially interesting, whereas a human being would never make that potential connection. That, yeah.
2: So, you know, the tools that CZI can bring to the table, we, uh, we fund science, like you're talking about. And we try to, uh, there's lots of ways to fund science. And just to be clear, you know what we fund is a tiny fraction of what the NIH funds, for instance. So, Although we, you,
0: you guys have been generous enough that it's uh, it, it definitely um, holds weight to NIH uh, NIH's contribution.
2: Yeah, and but I think it's every every funder has its own role in the ecosystem, and for us, it's really how do we incentivize new points of view? How do we incentivize collaboration? How do we incentivize open science? And so, a lot of our grants include. Um, inviting people to look, in, look at different fields. Our first neuroscience um, uh, RFA was uh, aimed towards incentivizing people from different backgrounds, immunologists, microbiologists, to come and look at how our nervous system works and how to keep it healthy. Or um, we uh, ask that our grantees participate in the preprint movement to accelerate the rate of sharing knowledge and actually others being able to build upon science. So that's the funding that we do. Um, in terms of building, um, we, we build software and hardware, um, like you mentioned. We put together teams that uh, can build tools that are more durable and scalable um, than someone in a single lab might be incentivized to do. There's a ton of great ideas, and uh, n- nowadays most scientists can tinker and build something useful for their lab. But it's really hard for them to be able to share uh, that tool sometimes beyond their own laptop or forget, you know, the next lab over or across the globe. So we partner with scientists to see like what is useful, what kinds of tools, you know, in imaging, Napari, like it's there's it's a useful image annotation tool um, that is born from an open source community. And how can we contribute to that? Or a cell by gene, which uh, works on single-cell data sets and how can we make it build a useful tool so that scientists can share data sets, analyze their own, and contribute to a larger um, corpus of information. So we have software teams that are building, collaborating with scientists to make sure that we're building easy-to-use, durable, translatable tools across the scientific community in the areas that we work in. Um, we also have institutes. This is where the imaging uh, work comes in, where, you know, we are proud owners of an electron microscope right now. Um, it, it's going to be installed um, at our imaging institute, and that will really contribute to a way where we can see work differently. But uh, we can the more hardware need, does need to be developed. You know, we're partnering with a fantastic scientist um, in the Biohub network to build a uh, a mini phase plate to increase, to align the electrons through, these, um, through the electron microscope to be able to increase the resolution so we can see in sharper detail. To, uh, so there's a lot of innovative work within the network that's happening. Um, and uh, these institutes have grand challenges that they're working on. Um, back to your question about cells, cells are just the smallest unit that are alive, and um, are your body, every, every, all of our bodies have many, many, many cells. There's, you know, some estimate of like 37 trillion cells, different cells in your body. And what are they all doing? And how do, what do they look like when, they're healthy, when you're healthy? What do they look like when you're sick? And um, where we're at right now with, you know, our understanding of cells and what happens when you get sick is basically we have we we've gotten pretty good at from the human genome project looking at how different mutations in your genetic code lead for you to be more susceptible to get sick or directly cause you to get sick. So we go from a mutation in your DNA to wow, you now have Huntington's disease, for instance. And there's a lot that happens in the middle. And that's one of the questions that we're going after at at CZI is what actually happens? So an analogy that I I like to use to share with my friends is right now, say we have a recipe for a cake. We know there's a typo in the recipe. And then the cake is awful. That's all we know. We don't know how the chef interprets the typo. We don't know what happens in the oven. And we don't actually know sort of how it's exactly connected to how the cake didn't turn out how you were, had expected. A lot of that um, is unknown, but we can actually systematically try to break this down. And one segment of that journey that we're looking at is how that mutation gets translated and acted upon in your cells. And all of your cells have what's called mRNA. mRNA are the actual instructions that are taken from the DNA. And what our work in single cell is, looking at how how every cell in your body is actually interpreting your DNA slightly differently. And what happens when healthy cells are interpreting the DNA instructions and when sick cells are interpreting those directions. And that is a ton of data. I just told you there's 37 trillion cells. There's different uh, large sets of mRNA in each cell, but the work that we've been funding is looking at how, um, first of all, gathering that information. Um, We've been um, incredibly lucky to be part of a very fast-moving field where we've gone from, in 2017, funding some methods work to now having really not complete but nearly complete atlases of how the human body works, how flies work, how mice work uh, at the single-cell level. And being able to then try to piece together, like, how does that all come together and when you're healthy and when you're sick? And the neat thing about the sort of inflection point where we're at in AI is that I can't look at this data and make sense of it. There's just too much of it. And biology is complex. Human bodies are complex. We need this much information. But the use of large language models can help us actually look at that data and gain insights, look at what trends are consistent with health and what trends are, um, are unsuspected. And eventually our hope uh, through uh, the use of these data sets that we've helped curate in the application of large language models is to be able to formulate a virtual cell, a cell that's completely um, uh, built off of the data sets of what we know about the human body, but allows us to manipulate and learn faster, and try new things um, to help move science and then uh, medicine along.
0: Do you think we've cataloged the total number of different cell types? Like, you know, every week I look at great journals like Cell, Nature, and Science. And for instance, I saw recently that um, using single cell sequencing, they've um, categorized be 18 plus different types of fat cells. We always think of like a fat cell versus a muscle cell. Mm-hmm. So, so now you've got 18 types. Um, each one is going to express many, many different genes and RNAs, mRNAs. And perhaps the um, one of them is responsible for, you know, what we see in the you know advanced type 2 diabetes or um, in other forms of obesity, or where people can't lay down fat cells, which turns out to be j- just as detrimental in those extreme cases. So now you've got all these lists of genes. But um, I always thought of single cell sequencing as necessary, but not sufficient, right? You need the information, but it doesn't resolve the problem. And I think of it more of a, as a hypothesis generating experiment. Like you, okay. So you have all these genes and you could say, wow, this gene is particularly elevated in the um, diabetics cell type of, let's say one of these fat cells or muscle cells for that matter, um, whereas it's not in non-diabetics. So then of the millions of different cells, maybe only uh, five of them differ dramatically. Mm-hmm. So then you, you generate a hypothesis, oh, it's the ones that differ dramatically that are important, but maybe one of those genes when it's only, you know, 50% changed has a huge effect because of some network biology effect. And so I guess what I'm trying to um, get to here is, you know, how does one meet that challenge and can AI help resolve that challenge by essentially placing those lists of genes into a... a you know, 10,000 hypotheses. Cause I'll tell you that the graduate students and postdocs in my lab get a chance to test one hypothesis at a time. And that's really the challenge, let alone one lab. Yeah. And um so for those that are listening to this and, you know, hopefully it's not getting outside the scope of, of kind of like standard uh, understanding or the understanding we've generated here. But what I'm basically saying is you have to pick at some point, more data always sounds great, but then how how do you decide what to test?
2: So no, we don't know all the cell types. Um I think one of... The one thing that was really exciting when we first launched this work was, you know, cystic fibrosis. Like, cystic fibrosis is caused by a mutation in CFTR. That's pretty well known. It affects a certain channel that makes it hard for mucus to be cleared. That's the basics of cystic fibrosis. When I went to medical school, it was taught as fact.
0: So their lungs fill up with fluid. These are people carrying around sacks of f- fluid filling up. I've yep. known people, like, I've worked with people, and like they have to literally dump the fluid out. Exactly. They can't run or do intense exercise. Life is shorter. Life is that. shorter. Yeah.
2: And when we applied single cell methodologies to the lungs, they discovered an entirely new cell type that actually is affected by a mutation in the CF mutation and cystic fibrosis mutation that actually changes the paradigm of how we think about cystic fibrosis. Amazing. Just unknown. So I don't think we know um, all the cell types. I think we'll continue to discover them and we'll continue to discover new relationships between cell and disease. Which leads me to the second example I want to bring up is um, this large data set that the entire scientific community has built around single cell is starting to allow us to say, this mutation, where is it expressed? What types of cell types it's expressed in? And um, we actually have built a tool at CZI called Cell by Gene where you can put in the mutation that you're interested in. And it gives you a heat map of cross cell types of which cell types are expressing the uh, gene that you're interested in. And so then you can start looking at, okay, if I look at gene X and I know it's related to heart disease, but if you look at the heat map, it's also spiking in the pancreas. That allows you to generate a hypothesis. Why? Um, And what happens when this gene is mutated in, in in the function of your pancreas? really exciting way to look and ask questions differently. Um, And you can also imagine a world where if uh, you're trying to develop a therapy, a drug, and the goal is to treat the function of the heart, but you know that it's also really active in in the pancreas again. So what is there going to be an unexpected side effect that you should think about as you're bringing uh, this drug to clinical trials? So uh, it, it's an incredibly exciting tool and one that's only going to get better as we get more and more sophisticated ways to analyze the data.
0: I must say I love that because if I look at the advances in neuroscience over the last 15 years, most of them um, didn't necessarily come from looking at the nervous system. It came from the understanding that the immune system impacts the brain. Everyone prior to that talked about the brain as an immune-privileged organ. What you just said also bridges and uh, the divide between single cells, organs, and systems, right? Because ultimately cells make up organs, organs make up systems, and they're all talking to one another. And everyone nowadays is familiar with like gut-brain axis or the, the microbiome being so important, but rarely is the um, the discussion between organs um, discussed, uh, so to speak. So um, I think it's wonderful. So the that tool was generated by CZI or CZI funded that tool. So how does no, this- we it, built that. It, we built it. You yeah. built it. So is it built by Meta? Is this Meta- No, have no, it no. It? Is This is CZI it just has com-
1: its own engineers. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're, they're completely different organizations.
0: Incredible. And, um, and so a graduate student or postdoc who's interested in a particular mutation could put this mutation into this database. Um, that graduate student or postdoc might be in a laboratory known for working on heart, but suddenly find that they're collaborating with other scientists that work on the pancreas. Yeah, um, which also is wonderful uh, because it bridges the divide between these fields. Fields are so siloed in science, not just different buildings, but they people rarely talk unless things like this are happening.
2: I mean, the graduate student is someone that we want to empower because one, they're the future of science, as you know. And um, within Cell by Gene, if you put in the gene you're interested in and it shows you the heat map, we also will pull up like the most relevant papers to that gene. And mm. so like read these things.
0: Fantastic. I'd like to take a quick break and acknowledge one of our sponsors, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens, now called AG1, is a vitamin mineral probiotic drink that covers all of your foundational nutritional needs. I've been taking Athletic Greens since 2012, so I'm delighted that they're sponsoring the podcast. The reason I started taking Athletic Greens and the reason I still take Athletic Greens once or usually twice a day is that it gets me the probiotics that I need for gut health. Our gut is very important, it's populated by gut microbiota that communicate with the brain, the immune system, and basically all the biological systems of our body to strongly impact our immediate and long-term health. And those probiotics in Athletic Greens are optimal and vital for microbiotic health. In addition, Athletic Greens contains a number of adaptogens, vitamins, and minerals that make sure that all of my foundational nutritional needs are met, and it tastes great. If you'd like to try athletic greens you can go to athleticgreens.com slash huberman and they'll give you five free travel packs that make it really easy to mix up athletic greens while you're on the road in the car on the plane etc and they'll give you a year's supply of vitamin d3 k2 again that's athleticgreens.com slash huberman to get the five free travel packs and the year's supply of vitamin d3 k2
1: I, I just think going back to your question from before i mean are there going to be more cell types that get discovered? I mean, I assume so, right? I mean, no catalog of the stuff has ever, you know, it doesn't seem like we're ever done, right? We keep on finding more, but I think that that gets to one of the things that I think are the strengths of of um, modern LLMs is the ability to kind of imagine different states that things can be in. So, from all the work that we've done and funded on the on the Human Cell Atlas, there is a large corpus of data that you can now. Train a, a kind of large scale uh, model on, and one of the things that we're doing um, at CCI, which I think is pretty exciting, is building um, what we think is one of the largest nonprofit life sciences AI clusters. Right, it's like a you know on the order of a thousand GPUs, and you know it's larger than what most people have access to in academia that you can do like serious engineering work on, and um, and you know by Basically training a model with all of the human cell atlas data and a, and a bunch of other um, inputs as well, we, we think you'll be able to basically imagine all of the different types of cells and all the different states that they can be in and when they're healthy and diseased and how they'll interact with um, you know, different um, – you know in, interact with each other, interact with different potential drugs – but I mean, I think the state of LLMs, I think this is where it's, it's helpful to understand, you know, have a good understanding and be grounded in like the modern state of AI. I mean, these things are not foolproof, right? I mean, one of the flaws of modern LLMs is they hallucinate, right? So the question is, how do you make it so that that can be an advantage rather than a disadvantage? And I think the way that it ends up being an advantage is when they help you imagine a bunch of states that someone could be in, but then you, you know, as the scientist or engineer, go and validate that those are true, whether they're, you know, solutions to how a protein can be folded or possible states that a cell could be in when it's interacting with other things. But, you know, we're not yet at the state with AI that you can just take the outputs of these things as, like, as gospel and run from there. But they, they are very good, I think, as you said, hypothesis generators or um, possible solution generators that then you can go validate. So I think that that's a very powerful um, thing that we can basically, you know, building on the first five years of science work around the human cell atlas and all the data that's been built out, carry that forward into something that I think is going to be a very novel tool going forward. Um, and that's the type of thing that I think we're set up to do well. I mean, you, you all you had this exchange a, a little while back about um, you know funding levels and how CZI is you know just sort of a drop in the in the, in the bucket compared to NIH. But I think we, we have this, the the thing that I think we can do that's different is, um, funding some of these longer term, bigger projects that it is hard to galvanize the, and pull together the energy to do that. And it's a, a lot of what, um, most science funding is, is like relatively small projects that are exploring things over relatively short time horizons. And one of the things that we try to do is, is like, build these tools over, you know, 5, 10, 15-year periods. They're often projects that require, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of funding and world-class engineering teams and infrastructure to do. And that, I think, is a pretty cool contribution to the field that, um, that I think is, there aren't as many other folks who are, who are doing that kind of thing. But that's one of the reasons why I'm personally excited about the virtual cell stuff, because it just, it's like this perfect intersection of all the stuff that we've done and single cell, the previous... Um, collaborations that we've done with the field, and you know, bring together the the um, industry and, and AI expertise around this. Yeah, I
0: completely agree that the model of uh, science that you're put together with CCI is isn't just unique from NIH, but it's extremely important. The um, independent investigator model is what's driven the progression of science in this country, and to some extent in Northern Europe for the last hundred years, and it's um, wonderful. Um, On the one hand, because it allows for that image we have of a scientist kind of tinkering away or the people in their lab and then like the Eurekas. Um, And that hopefully translates to better human health. Um, But... I think, in my opinion, we've moved past that model as the most effective model or the only model that should be explored. Yeah, I and, just think it's a balance. It's I mean, a balance. You, you, well, want, it's
1: a, you want that, but you want to empower yeah. those people. I think that that's, these tools empower sure. those Sure, And there are mechanisms to do
0: that like NIH, but, but it's hard um, to do collaborative science. It's, um, it's sort of interesting that we're sitting here not far, for because I grew up right near here as well, um, not far from the garage model of tech, right? The, the Hewlett-Packard yeah. model. Um, not far from here at all. Um, and the idea was that, you know, the tinkerer in the garage, the inventor, and then people often forget that to implement all the technologies they discovered took enormous factories and warehouses. So, um, you know, there's there's a similarity there to Facebook, Meta, et cetera. But I think in science, we imagine that the scientists alone in their laboratory and those eureka moments. But I think nowadays that the big questions really require um, extensive collaboration and certainly tool development. Um, and one of the tools that you keep coming back to is these LLMs, these large language models. And um, maybe you could just elaborate for for those that aren't familiar. You know, what are what is a large language model um, uh, it, for the, the the uninformed? What, what is it, um, and what does it allow? Uh, what does it allow us to do that um, you know different types of other types of AI don't allow? Um, or more importantly, perhaps, what does it allow us to do that a, a bunch of really smart people highly informed in a given area of
1: science, staring at the data, Mm -hmm. What, what can it do that they can't do? Sure. So I think a lot of the progression of machine learning has been about building systems, neural networks or otherwise, that can basically make sense and find patterns in larger and larger amounts of data. And there was a breakthrough a number of years back um, that some folks at Google actually made called this Transformer model architecture. And it was this huge breakthrough because before then, there was somewhat of a cap where, you know, if you fed more data into a neural network past some some point, it didn't really glean more insights from it. Whereas Transformers just, and you know, we haven't seen the end of how big that can scale to yet. I mean, I think that there's a chance that we run into some some ceiling, but... It's, so it never
0: asymptotes.
1: It just, we haven't observed it yet, but we mm-hmm. just haven't built big enough systems yet. Mm-hmm. So I would guess that, um, I don't know, I think that this is actually one of the big questions in, in the AI field today is basically are transformers and are the current model architectures sufficient? And if you just build larger and larger clusters, do you eventually get something that's like human intelligence or super intelligence? Or um, is there some kind of fundamental limit to this architecture that we just haven't reached yet? And once we, we kind of get a little bit further in building them out, then we'll reach that and then we'll need a few more leaps before we get to you know, the, the level of, of, of um, AI that I think will unlock you know a ton of really futuristic and amazing things. But there's no doubt that even just being able to process the amount of data that we can now with this model architecture um, has unlocked a lot of new use cases. And the reason why they're called large language models is because one of the first uses of them is um, people basically feed in all of the language from uh, basically the World Wide Web, and you can think about them as basically prediction machines. So if you 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 fit in, um, you put in a prompt, and it can basically you know predict a version of what should come next. So you know you you like type in a headline for a news story, and it can kind of predict what it thinks the story should be. Or you could train it so that it could be a chatbot, right? Where okay, if if you're prompted with this question, you can get. Um, this response, but one of the interesting things is it turns out that there's actually nothing specific to using human language in it. So if instead of feeding it human language, if you use that model architecture for for a network, and instead you feed it all of the human cell atlas data, then if you prompt it with a state of a cell, it can spit out um, different versions of of like. What you know, how that cell can interact, or different states that the cell could be in next when it interacts with different things.
0: Does it have to take a genetics class? So, for instance, if you give it a bunch of genetics no. data, do you have to say, "Hey, by the way," and then you give it a genetics class so it understands so that you know you got DNA, RNA, mRNA, and proteins? No, and, I think that the um, basic
1: the basic nature of all these machine learning techniques is they're they're basically pattern recognition systems. So they're these like very deep statistical machines. Um, that are very efficient at finding patterns um, so it's it's not actually you know you don't need to teach a, a language model that's trying to you know speak a language um, you know a lot of specific things of, about that language either you just feed it in a bunch of examples and then you know let's say you teach it about something um, in English but then you also give it a bunch of examples of people speaking Italian um, it'll actually, be able to explain the thing that it learned in English in Italian, right? Even though it, you know, it is, so the, the crossover and just the pattern recognition um, is the thing that is pretty profound and powerful about this. But it really does apply to a lot of different things. Another example in the scientific community um, has been the wor- work that AlphaFold, you know, that, that basically the um, the folks at DeepMind have done on on protein folding. Um, it's you know just basically a lot of the the same model architecture. But instead of language, there they fold. They they kind of fed in all of these the protein data, and you can give it a state, and it can spit out solutions to how those proteins get folded. So it's very powerful. I don't think we know yet, as an industry, what the um, what the natural limits of it are, and that that's one of the things that's pretty exciting about the current state. But um, it certainly allows you to solve problems that just weren't solved with the generation of machine learning that came before it. It sounds like
0: CZI is moving a lot of work that was just done in vitro in dishes, um, and in vivo in, um, living organisms, model organisms or humans to in silico, as we say. So, um, do you foresee a future where a lot of biomedical research, certainly the, the work of CZI, um, included is done by machines. I mean, obviously it's, much lower cost, um, and you can run millions of experiments, which of course is not to say that humans are not going to be involved. Um, but I love the idea that we can run experiments in silico, um, and mass. I,
2: I think, uh, the in silico experiments are going to be incredibly helpful to test things quickly, to cheaply, and to, um, to s- just unleash a lot of creativity I do think you need to be very careful about making sure it still translates and matches this uh, humans. Um, You know, one thing that's funny in uh, basic science is we've basically cured every single disease in mice. Like mice have, uh, we we know what's going on when they have a number of diseases because they're they're used as a model organism, but they are not humans, and a lot of times that research is relevant, but not directly one-to-one translatable to humans. So you just have to be really careful about making sure that it actually works for humans.
0: sounds like what CZI is doing is actually creating a new field. As I'm hearing all of this, I'm thinking, okay, this this transcends immunology department, you know, cardiothoracic surgery, I mean, neuroscience. I mean, the idea of, of a new field where you certainly embrace the realities of universities and laboratories because that's where most of the work that you're funding is done. Is that right? Mm-hmm. It's, okay. So um, maybe we need to think about what it means to do science differently, and I think that's one of the things that's most exciting. Um, and along those lines, it seems that bringing together a lot of different types of people at different uh, major institutions um, is just going to be especially important. So I know that the initial CCI Biohub, um, gratefully. Um, Included Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll put that first in the list, um, but also UCSF. Yeah, <laughs> forgive me. <laughs> the, uh, many friends at UCSF and also <laughs> Berkeley. Um, but there are now some additional institutions involved. So maybe you could talk about that and what motivated the decision to branch outside the Bay Area, and um, and why you selected those particular additional institutions to be included.
1: Well, I mean, I'll I'll just say part of. A big part of why we wanted to create additional biohubs is we were just so impressed by the work that the folks who are running the first biohub did. Yeah, um, and I also think, and you should walk through the the uh, work of the Chicago Biohub and the New York Biohub that we just announced. But I think it's actually an interesting set of examples that balance um, the limits of what you want to do with like physical material engineering and. And um and and where things are purely biological, because the Chicago team is really building more sensors to be able to understand what's going on in your body. But that's more of like a physical kind of engineering challenge. Whereas the the New York team, we basically talk about this as like a cellular endoscope of being able to have a, like an immune cell or something that can go and understand, um, you know, what is like what's the thing that's going on in your body. But it's not like a physical piece of hardware. It's a cell that you can basically. Um, you know, have have um, uh, just go report out on 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 different things that are happening inside the body. So, Ooh, so I mean, making you should sell the, the microscope. Totally. Yeah, and and then and then eventually, actually being able to act on it. But I mean, but you should you should go into more detail on all this.
2: So, a core principle of how we think about biohubs it is that it has to be um, uh, when we invited proposals, it has to be at least three institutions. Um, so, really breaking down the barrier of a single university. Oftentimes asking for the people designing the research aim to come from all different backgrounds. um, And to explain why that the problem that they want to solve requires interdisciplinary, inter-university institution collaboration to actually make happen. Um, We just put that request for proposal out there uh, with our San Francisco Biohub as an example, where they've done incredible work in single cell biology and infectious disease. And we got, I want to say, like 57 proposals from over 150 institutions. A lot of ideas came together. And, you know, we are so, so excited that we've been able to launch Chicago and New York. Um, Chicago is a collaboration between UIUC, uh, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and University of Chicago and Northwestern. Um, And if I... Obviously, these universities are multifaceted, but if I were to sort of describe them by their, like, stereotypical strength, Northwestern has an incredible medical um, uh, system and hospital system. University of Chicago brings to uh, the table incredible basic science strengths. Uh, University of Illinois is a computing powerhouse. And so they came together and proposed that they were going to start thinking about cells and, and tissue, um, so that's one, one of the layers that you just alluded to. So how do the cells that we know behave and act differently when they come together as a tissue? And the fir- one of the first tissues that they're starting with is skin. So they've been already been able to, um, as a collaboration under the leadership of Shana Kelly, design um, artif- uh, engineered skin tissue. The architecture looks the same as what's in you and I. And what they've done is built these super, super thin sensors. And they embed these sensors um, throughout the layers of this engineered tissue. And they read out the data. They want to see how these cells, what these cells are secreting, how these cells talk to each other, and what happens when these cells get inflamed. Um, Inflammation is an incredibly important process that drives 50% of all deaths. Um, And so this is another sort of disease agnostic approach. We want to understand inflammation. And they're going to get a ton of information out from these sensors that tell you what happens when something goes awry. Because right now we can say, like, when you have an allergic reaction, your skin gets red and puffy. But what is the earliest signal of that? And these sensors can look at the behaviors of these cells over time, and then you can apply a large language model to look at the earliest statistically significant changes that can allow you to intervene um, as early as possible. So that, that's what Chicago's doing. They're starting in the um, uh, skin cells. They're also looking at the neuromuscular junction, um, which is the connection between where a neuron uh, attaches to a muscle and tells the muscle how to behave. Super important in things like ALS, but also in aging. Um, The slowed transmission of information across that neuromuscular junction is what causes old people to fall. Their brain cannot trigger their muscles to react fast enough. And so we want to be able to embed these sensors to understand how these different um, uh, interconnected systems within our bodies work together. In New York, uh, they're doing uh, a related uh, but uh, equally exciting project where they're um, engineering individual cells to be able to um, go in and identify changes in uh, in a human body. So um, what they'll do is uh, they're calling it. So it's uh, yeah, wild. It's, I
0: mean, I yeah, love yeah. it. I mean, it's um, this is. We. I don't want to go on a tangent, but it, for those that want to look it up, adaptive optics. You know, there's a lot of. Uh, distortion and interference when you try and look at something really small or really far away and really smart physicists uh, figured out, well, use the interference. As part of the microscope, make those actually l- l- lenses of the microscope. We should bit, talk about imaging you know? separately. So, yeah. after, so after, after I mean, you it's, talk it's, about the New York It's, bio it's extremely clever along those lines. It's not intuitive, but then when you hear it, it's like it makes so much sense. Yeah. You know, it's not immediately intuitive. Make the cells that are already can navigate to tissues or embed themselves in tissues be the microscope within that tissue. Totally. Mm-hmm. I love it.
2: Um, the, the, the way that I explain this to my friends and my family is this is fantastic voyage, but real life. Um, Like we are going into the human body and we're using the immune cells, which, you know, are privileged and already working to keep your body healthy and being able to target them to examine certain things. So like you can engineer an immune cell to go in your body and look inside your coronary arteries and say, are these arteries um, healthy or are there plaques? Because plaques lead to blockage, which lead to heart attacks. Um, and the cell can then record that information and report it back out. That's the first half. Of what the New York Biohub is going to do. Fantastic. The second half is: Can you then engineer the cells to go do something about it? Can I then tell a different cell, immune cell, that is able to transport in your body to go in and clean that up in a targeted way? And um, so I, it's incredibly exciting. They're going to study. Things that are sort of immune privilege that your immune system normally doesn't have access to, um, things like ovarian and pancreatic cancer. Um, they'll also look at a number of neurodegenerative diseases since um, the immune system doesn't presently have a ton of access into the nervous system. Uh, but they, it's, it's both mind-blowing and it feels like sci-fi, but science is actually in a place where if you really... Pushed a group of incredibly qualified scientists to say, could you do this if given the chance? The answer is like probably. Give us enough time, the bright team and resources, like it's doable.
1: Yeah. I mean it's a it's a 10 to 15 year project. Yeah. But it's it's awesome. Engineered cells, yeah.
0: I, I love the optimism and and the moment you said make the cell the microscope, so to speak, I was like, yes, yes, and yes. So it, it, it just makes so much sense. What motivated the decision to do? The work of, of CZI CCI um, in the context of existing universities, as opposed to, you know, there's still some real estate up in Redwood City where there's a bunch of space to put biotech companies and just hiring people from all all backgrounds and and saying, hey, you know, have at it and and doing this stuff from scratch. I mean, it's a it's a very interesting decision to do this in the context of an existing framework of like graduate students that need to do their thesis and get a first author paper. Because there's a whole set of structures within academia that I think both facilitate, but also limit the progression of science. You know, that inve- independent investigator model that we talked about a little mm-hmm. bit earlier, it it's so core to the way science has been done. This is very different and frankly sounds far more efficient, if I'm to be t- completely honest. And, um, you know, we'll see if I renew my NIH funding after saying that. <laughs> but um, but I think we all want the same thing. We all want to, as scientists and, and as, um, you know, as humans, we want to understand the way we work and we want um, healthy uh, people to persist to be healthy and we want sick people to get healthy. I mean, that's really ultimately the goal. It's not super complicated. It's just hard to do.
2: So the teams at the biohub are actually um, independent of the universities. Got it. So each biohub will probably have in total maybe 50 people working on sort of deep efforts. However, it's an acknowledgement that not all of the best scientists who can contribute to this area are actually um, going to, one, want to leave a university or want to take on the full-time scope of this project. So it's the ability to partner with universities um, and to have the faculty at all the universities be able to contribute to the overall project um, is how the biohub is structured. Got it.
1: But a lot of the way that we're approaching CZI is this long-term iterative project to figure out, try a bunch of different things, figure out which things produce the most interesting results, and then double down on those in the next five-year push, right? So we just went through this period where we kind of wrapped up the first five years of the science program, and we tried a lot of different models, right? All kinds of different things. And um, it's not that the Biohub model, we don't think it's like, the best or only model, but we th- we found that it was sort of a, a a really interesting way to unlock a bunch of collaboration and bring some technical resources that allow for this longer term development. And it's not something that is widely um, being pursued across the rest of the field. So we figured, okay, this is like a an interesting thing that we can that we can help push on. But I I mean, yeah, we we do believe in the collaboration. Um, but I, I also think that we come at this with. You know, we don't think that the way that we're pursuing this is like the only way to do this or the way that everyone should do it we're, we're pretty aware of you know the, um you know what is the rest of the ecosystem and how we can play a unique role in it it feels very synergistic
0: with the way science is already done and also fills an incredibly important niche that frankly wasn't filled before um, along the lines of implementation so let's say um your large language models combined with imaging tools uh, um, reveal that a particular set of genes um, acting in a cluster, um, I don't know, set up an an organ crash. Let's say the, pan- the pancreas crashes at a particular stage of uh, pancreatic cancer. I mean, still one of the most deadliest of the, yeah. of the cancers. And um, uh, there are others that you certainly wouldn't want to get, but that's among the, the ones you wouldn't want to get uh, the most. So you discover that and then, and the idea is that, okay, then um, AI reveals some potential drug targets that then Bear out in vitro, in a dish, and in a mouse model. Um, How is the actual implementation of of, to drug discovery, or maybe this target is druggable, maybe it's not. Maybe it requires some other approach, Mm -hmm. you know, laser laser ablation approach or something. We we don't know. But ultimately, is CZI going to be involved in the implementation of new therapeutics? Is that the idea?
2: Less so. Less so. Uh, That's you know, this is where it's important to work in an ecosystem and to know your own limitations, like. There are groups and startups and companies that take that and bring it to translation very effectively. I would say the place where we have a small window into that world is actually our work with rare disease groups. Um, we we have, uh, through our Rare One portfolio, funded patient advocates to create um, rare disease organizations where patients come together uh, and uh, actually... If, pool their collective experience. Uh, They build bioregistries, registries registries of their natural history, and they both partner with uh, researchers to do the research about their disease and with uh, drug developers to uh, incentivize drug developers to focus on what they may need for their disease. And, you know, one thing that's important to point out is that rare diseases aren't rare. There are over 7,000 rare diseases and uh, collectively impact many, many individuals. And I think the thing that's from a you know, basic science uh, perspective, the an incredibly fascinating thing about rare diseases is that there are actually windows to how the body normally should work. And so there are often uh, mutations that when, uh, when genes that were, when they're mutated Cause very specific diseases, but that tell you how the normal biology works as well. Got it.
0: So, you discussed basically the the goals, major goals and initiatives of the CZI for the next say five to ten years, mm-hmm. um, and then beyond that. The targets will be explored by biotech companies. Um, They'll grab those targets and and test them and and implement them.
1: There have also, I think, been a couple of teams from the initial Biohub that were interested in spinning out ideas into startups. So that's just even though it's not a thing that we're going to pursue because we're a philanthropy. um, We want to enable the work that gets done to be able to get turned into companies and things that other people go take and, and, and run towards, towards building, you know, ultimately therapeutics. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's another zone, but that's just, that's not a thing that we're going to do. Got it. Um, I gather you're both optimists. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Is that part of what brought you together? Forgive me for switching to a personal question, but I love the optimism um, that, that seems to sit at the root of the CZI.
2: I will say that we are uh, incredibly hopeful people, but it it manifests in different ways between the two of us yeah <laughs> what, what do you what, how would you describe your optimism versus mine? It's not a loaded question.
1: Um, I don't know um, huh I mean, I think I'm more probably technologically optimistic about what can be built. And I think you, because of your focus as, you know, an actual doctor, um, kind of have more of a sense of how that's going to affect actual people in their lives. Um, whereas for me, it's like, I mean, a lot of my work it is, you know, it's like we touch a lot of people around the world. Um, and the scale is sort of immense. And I think for you just like, it's like being able to improve the lives of individuals, whether it's, you know, students at any of the schools that you've started or any of the stuff that we've supported through the education work, which isn't the goal here or, you know, like just being able to improve people's lives in that way, I think is the thing that I've seen you be super passionate about. I don't know. Does that, do you agree with that characterization? I'm trying, I'm trying to.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's very fair and I'm sort of giggling to myself because in a day-to-day life as like life partners, our relative optimism comes through as uh, Mark just like is overly optimistic about his time management and will get engrossed in interesting ideas. I'm late. And he's late. and I, every <laughs> Positions time I, are very punctual. And yeah. because he's late, I have to channel Mark as an optimist. Whenever I'm waiting for wow, that's him. That's such a nice way. Of,
1: <laughs> okay, I'll, I, I'll start using that. I, that's what I think when I'm
2: in the driveway with the kids waiting for you. I'm like, Mark is an optimist. Um, and so his optimism translates to some tardiness. Whereas I'm a, sort of, I'm like, how does what's how is, how is this going to happen? Like, I'm going to open a spreadsheet. I'm going to start putting together a plan and like a putting pulling together all the pieces, calling people to sort of like bring something to life.
1: But it's it's one of my favorite quotes that is uh, optimists tend to be successful and pessimists tend to be right. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's true in a lot of different aspects of life. right We it's know like, who said that? Did, um, I, did you say that? Mark no, no, no. no I, I did, no, I did not. not. No, Absolutely no, not. No, 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 no. I like it. I did not invent it. Yeah. Um, We'll I, give it to you we'll put it out no there no, no 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 just, no, just, no. Kid, just kidding just kidding. but <laughs> yeah. but i i do think that there's really something to it right I and mean, there's like if you're discussing any idea there's all these reasons why it might not work and uh, so i i think that and those reasons are you know probably true the people who are stating them are you know probably have some validity to it but the question is that is that the most productive way to view the world and you know, I think across the board, and you know, I think the people who tend to be the most productive and get the most done, um, you kind of need to be optimistic because if you don't believe that something can get done, then why would you go work on it?
0: The reason I asked the question is that, you know, that these days we hear a lot about, you know, the future is looking so dark in these various ways. And, um, you have children, so you have families and, um, you are a family, excuse me. And, and you also have families independently, um, that are now merged, but, um, I love the optimism behind the CZI because, it, you know, it, you know, behind all this, there's sort of a set of big statements on the wall. One, uh, the future can be better than the present in terms of treating disease. Maybe even you said eliminating diseases, all diseases. I love that optimism. Um, and that there's a tractable path to do it. Like what we're going to put, put literally, you know, money and time and energy and people and technology and AI behind that. And so um, I have to ask, uh, was having children um, a significant um, modifier in terms of your, your view of the future? Like, wow, like you hear all this doom and gloom, like what's the future going to be like for them? What, did you sit back and think, you know, what would it look like if there was a future with no diseases? Um, is that the future we want our children in? I mean, I, I'm voting a big yes. So we're not going to, we're not going to debate that at all. But was having children a, a sort of an inspiration for the CCI in some way?
1: Yeah.
2: So, I think my answer to that um, I would dial backwards for me, um, and I'll just tell a very brief uh, story about my family. I'm the daughter of Chinese Vietnamese uh, refugees. Uh, my parents and grandparents were boat people. If you remember, people left Vietnam during the war in these small boats into the South China Sea, and um, the there were stories about how these boats would sink with whole families on them, and so my grandparents, who both sets of grandparents who knew each other, decided that there was a better future out there, and they were willing to take risk for it, um, but they were afraid of losing all of their kids. I my dad is one of six, my mom is one of ten, and so they decided that there was something out there in this bleak time, and they paired up their kids one from each family, and sent them out on these little boats before the internet, before cell phones, and just said, we'll see you on the other side. Wow. And um, the kids were between the ages of like, you know, 10 to 25, so young kids. My, my mom was a teenager, uh, early teen when this happened, um, and everyone made it, and I get to sit here and talk to you. So, how could I not believe that like better is possible and like I hope that that's in my like epigenetics somewhere and then I carry <laughs> that on
0: That is a spectacular story, isn't that wild? It is spectacular. How
2: can I be a pessimist with that? I love it. Yeah. Well, and
0: I so appreciate that you became a physician because yeah. you're now bringing that optimism and that epigenetic understanding yeah. and cognitive understanding and emotional understanding to the field of medicine. so I, I'm grateful to. Um, the people that made that decision.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, when I think you don't, re- I've, I've always known that story, but you don't understand how wild that feels until you have your own child. And you're like, well, I can't even, I, I refuse to let her use, you know, glass bottles only or something like that. And you're like, oh my God, like the risk and the sort of willingness of my grandparents to believe in something bigger and better, um, is just astounding. And it and our own children sort of give it a sense of urgency.
0: Again, spectacular yeah. story. And uh, you're, you're sending knowledge out into the fields of science and bringing knowledge into the fields of science. And uh, I love this. We'll, we'll see you on the other side. Yeah. I'm, I'm confident that it will all come back. Oh. Well, thank you so much for that. I um, Marco, you have the opportunity to talk about did having kids change your world view? I mean, it's really <laughs> tough to beat that story. <laughs> it is tough to beat that story. And they are also your children. So in, in this case,
1: you get two for the price of one, so to speak. So, um. Having children definitely changes your time horizon. Something that that's one thing is you, you just, like there are all these things that I think we had talked about for as long as we've known each other that you eventually want to go do. But then it's like, oh, we're having kids. We we need to, like, get on this, right? So I think there's...
2: That was actually one of the checklists, the baby checklist before the first. It
1: was like the baby's coming. We have baby. to, like, start CZI. Yeah. Um, Truly. And, like, sitting in the hospital delivery room, finishing editing the letter that we were going to publish to, to announce the, the work that we're doing that on CZI. Some people think that is an
2: exaggeration. It was not. We really were editing the final draft. Birth CZI before you birth a <laughs> yeah. <the human> child.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's, it's an incredible initiative. I've, I've been following it since its inception, and, um, and it's already been tremendously successful. And everyone in the field of science, and I have a lot of communication with those folks, uh, feels the same way. And, and the future is even brighter for it. It's clear. And thank you for expanding to the Midwest and, and New York. And um, uh, we're all very excited to see where all of this goes. I share in your optimism. Yeah. And thank you for your time today.
2: Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thank you. A lot more to do. And now for my discussion with Mark Zuckerberg. Slight shift of topic here. You're extremely well known for your role in technology development, but by virtue of your personal interests and also where meta technology interfaces with mental health and physical health, you're starting to become synonymous with health, whether or not you realize it or not. Um, Part of that is because there's um, post footage of you rolling jujitsu, you won a jiu-jitsu competition recently, um, you're doing other forms of martial arts, water sports, including surfing and, um, and on and on. So um, you're doing it yourself, but maybe we could just start off with technology and get this issue out of the way um, first, which is that I think many people assume that technology, especially technology that involves a, str- a screen, excuse me, of any kind, Mm -hmm. is going to be detrimental to our health. But that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. So could you um, explain how you see technology um, meshing with, inhibiting, or maybe even promoting physical and mental health?
1: Sure. I I mean, I think this is a a really important topic. It's, um, you know, the research that we've done suggests that it's not like all good or all bad. I think how you're using the technology has a big impact on whether it is basically a positive experience for you. And even within technology, even within social media, there's not kind of one type of thing that people do. I think at its best, you're forming uh, meaningful connections with other people. And you know, there's a lot of research that basically suggests that, you know, it's it's the relationships that we have and you know, the friendships that kind of bring the most happiness and in, in our lives and at some level end up even correlating with living a longer and healthier life because you know that kind of you know, grounding that you have in community ends up being important for that. So I think that that aspect of social media, which is um, you know the ability to connect with people, to understand what's going on in people's lives, have empathy for them, um, communicate what's going on with your life, express that, that's generally positive. There, there are ways that it can be negative in terms of um, bad interactions, things like bullying, um, which we can we can talk about because there's a lot that we've done to basically make sure that, that people can be safe from that and give people tools and give kids um, the ability to have the right parental controls, that their parents can oversee that. But that's sort of the interacting with people side. There's another side of, of all this, which I think of as just like passive consumption, which it, at its best... Um, it's entertainment, right? And entertainment is an important human thing too. But I don't think that that has quite the same association with the long-term well-being and health um, benefits as being able to help people connect with other people does. Um, And I think at its worst, um, some of the stuff that we see online um, you know, I think these days a lot of the news is just so relentlessly negative um, that it's just hard to, you know, come away from an experience where you're, you know, looking at, at the news for, you know, half an hour and like feel better about the world. So I think that there's a mix on this. Um, I think the more that social media is about connecting with people, um, and the more that when you're kind of consuming and using. Um, the, the media part of social media um, to learn about things that kind of enrich you and can provide inspiration or education, as opposed to things that um, are, just leave you with a more toxic feeling, and that that's sort of the the balance that we try to, to get right across our products. And I think we're pretty aligned with the community because at the end of the day, you know, I mean, people don't want to use a product and come away feeling bad. You know, there's a, there's a lot that people talk about um, – evaluate a lot of these products in terms of information and utility. But I think it's as important when you're designing a product to think about what kind of feeling you're creating with the people who use it. Right. Whether that's kind of an aesthetic sense when you're designing hardware or just kind of like what like what what do you what do you make people feel? And generally people don't want to feel bad. Right. So I I think when you know that doesn't mean that we want to, you know, shelter people from bad things that are happening in the world. But I, I don't really think that You know, it's not what people want, um, you know, for us to just be kind of just showing like all the super negative stuff all day long. Um, So we we work hard on all these different problems, you know, making sure that we're helping connect people as best as possible, helping make sure that we give people good tools um, to block people who might be bullying them or harass them or especially for younger folks, you know, anyone under the age of 16 defaults into an experience where their experience is private. We have all these parental tools um, so that way... You know, parents can can kind of understand what what their children is up to and are up to in a good balance um, you know and then on the other side we try to give people tools to understand how they're spending their time um, and we try to give people tools so that you know if you're if you're a teen and and you're kind of stuck in some you know loop of of just looking at one type of content will nudge you and say hey you've been looking at content of this type for a while like how about something else and here's here's a bunch of other examples so I think that there were things that you can do to kind of push this in a positive direction, but I think it just starts with having a more nuanced view of like, this isn't all good and all, or all bad. And the more that you can make it kind of a positive thing, the, the better this will be for all the people who use our products.
0: Yeah, that makes really good sense. In terms of the negative experience, I agree. I don't think anyone wants a negative experience in the moment. I think where some people get concerned perhaps, and I think about my own interactions with say Instagram, which I use all the time. Um, for getting information out, but also consuming information, and I happen to love it. It's where I essentially launched the non-podcast segment of my podcast, and continue to. I can think of experiences that are a little bit like um, highly processed food, where it tastes good at the time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's uh, it's highly engrossing, but it, it's not necessarily nutritious, and you don't feel very good afterwards. Yeah. So for me, that would be uh, my uh, the little collage of default. Um, options to click on in Instagram. Occasionally, I notice, and this just reflects m- my failure, not Instagram's, right? That there are a lot of um, like street fight things, like of people beating people up on the street. And I have to say, these have a very strong gravitational pull. I'm not somebody that enjoys seeing violence per se, but, you know, I find myself, I'll click on one of these, like, what happened? And I'll see someone like, you know, get hit and there's like a little melee on the street or something. And those seem to be offered to me a lot lately. And again, this is my fault. It reflects my prior searching experience, but it I noticed that it has a bit of a gravitational pull where, um, you know, there's no, I didn't learn anything. It's not teaching me any kind of useful street um, mm-hmm. self-defense skills of any kind. Um, and at the same time, I also really enjoy some of the the cute animal stuff. And so i get a lot of those also so there's this polarized you know collage that's yeah. offered to me that reflects my prior search behavior you could argue that the the cute animal stuff um, is just entertainment but actually it f- it fills me with a feeling in some cases that truly delights me i delight in animals and we're not just talking about kittens i mean animals i've never seen before interactions between animals i've never seen before that truly delight me they energize me in a positive way that when i leave instagram I do think I'm better off. Mm -hmm. So I'm grateful for the Mm -hmm. algorithm in that sense. Mm -hmm. But I guess the direct question is, is the algorithm just reflective of what one has been looking at a lot prior to that moment where they log on? Or is it also trying to do exactly what you uh, described, which is trying to give people a good feeling experience that leads to more good feelings?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we try to do this in a long-term way, right? I think one simple example of this is we had this issue a number of years back about clickbait news, right? So articles that would have, um, you know, basically a, a headline uh, that grabbed your attention, that made you feel like, oh, I need to click on this, and then you click on it, and then the article is actually, you know, about something that's somewhat tangential to it, um, but people clicked on it. So you know, the naive version of this stuff, you know, the like ten-year-old version, it was like, oh, people seem to be clicking on this. Maybe that's good, but. It's actually a pretty straightforward exercise to instrument the system to realize that, hey, people click on this, and then, you know, they don't really spend a lot of time reading the the news that after clicking on it, and um, after they do this a few times, they, you know, it doesn't really correlate with them, you know, saying that they're having a good experience. Um, some of what you, some of how we we measure this, is just by looking at how people use the services, but it's also important to balance that by having like real people come in and you know tell us okay we we show them here are the stories that we could have showed you which of these um, are most meaningful to you or would, would make it so that you have the best experience and just kind of like mapping the algorithm and what we do to that ground truth of what people say that they want so I, I think that through a set of things like that we really have made large steps to minimize things like clickbait over time. It's not gone from the internet, but I think we've done a good job of minimizing it on on our services. Within that, though, I do think that we need to be pretty careful about not being paternalistic about what makes different people feel good, right? So, I mean, I don't know that everyone feels good about about cute animals. I mean, I can't imagine that people would feel really bad about it, but maybe they don't have as profound of a positive um, reaction to it as as, as you just expressed. and I don't know. Maybe people who are more into fighting would look at the you know the street fighting videos, assuming that they're within our community standards. Sure. I think that there is a level of violence that we just don't want to be showing at all. But that's a, a separate question. Um, but if they are, I mean, then you know, it's like I mean, I am pretty into MMA. I, I, don't, I don't get a lot of street fighting videos, but if I did, maybe I, I'd feel like I was learning something from that. Um, I, I think at various times in the company's history, we've been a little bit too paternalistic about saying, this is good content, this is bad, you should like this, um, this is unhealthy for you. And I I think that we want to look at the long-term effects. You don't want to get stuck in a a short-term loop of like, okay, just because you did this today doesn't mean it's like what you aspire for yourself over time. But I think as long as you look at the long-term of what people both say they want and what they do, giving people a fair amount of latitude to like the things that they like I just think feels like the right set of values to bring to this. Um, now, of course, that doesn't go for everything. There are things that are kind of truly off limits and, and you know, things that, you know, like bullying, for example, or, you know, things that are really like inciting violence, things like that. I mean, we have the whole community standards around this. But I think, except for those things, which I would hope that most people can agree, okay, bullying is bad, right? I I hope that, you know, 100% of people agree with that. You know, Not 100, maybe 99%. Um, except for the things that kind of get that sort of very, uh, you know, that, that feel pretty extreme and bad like that. I think you want to give people space to like what they want to like.
0: Yesterday, I had the um, very good experience of learning from the meta team about safety protections that are in place for kids who are using mm-hmm. um, meta platforms. And frankly, I was really positively surprised at the huge number of filter-based tools and 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 just ability to customize the experience so that it can um, stand the best chance of enriching, not just remaining neutral, but enriching their mental health status. Yeah. Um, one thing that came about in that conversation, however, was I realized there are all these tools, but do people really know that these tools exist? And I think about my own experience with Instagram. I, I love watching, Adam Assari's Friday Q and A's because yeah. he, he explains a lot of the tools that I didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if people haven't seen that, I highly recommend they, they watch that. Um, it's, I think every takes questions on Thursdays and answers them most every Fridays. Um, so if I'm not aware of the tools without watching that, um, that exists for adults, um, how does Meta look at the challenge of making sure that people know that there are all these tools? I mean, dozens and dozens of very useful tools, but I think most of us just know the hashtag, the tag, mm-hmm. the click, stories versus feed. Uh, we now know to, yeah. that, you know, I also post to threads. I mean, so so we know the major channels and tools. But um, this is like owning a vehicle that has incredible features mm-hmm. that one w- doesn't realize can take you off road, can allow your vehicle to fly. I yeah. mean, there's a lot there. So uh, what could, what do you think could be done to get that information out? Maybe this conversation could cue people to, to no, their I, existence. I mean, that's,
1: that's part, part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this is, I mean, I think most of the narrative around social media is not, okay, all of the different tools that people have to control their experience. It's, you know, the kind of narrative of, is this just... Negative for 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 teens or something, and and I think again a lot of this comes down to you know do um, you know how is the experience being tuned and is it actually you know like are people using it to connect in in positive ways and if so I think it's really positive, um, so yeah I mean I think uh, part of this is we probably just need to get out and talk to people more about it, um, and then there's an in product aspect which is you know if you're a teen and you sign up, we take you through a pretty um, you know, extensive experience that um, tries to outline some of this. But that has limits too, right? Because when you sign up for a new thing, um, if you're bombarded with like, here's a list of, of of features, you're like, okay, I just signed up for this. I don't really understand much about what the service is. Like, let me go find some people to follow um, who are my friends on here before I like learn about controls to you know, prevent people from harassing me or something. Um, that's why I think it's really important to also... Show uh, a bunch of these tools in context. So you know, if you're looking at comments, um, and you know, if you if you go to you know delete a comment or um, you go to edit something, you know, try to give people prompts in line. It's like, hey, did you know that you can manage things in in, in these ways um, around that? Or when you're in the inbox and you're filtering something, right? It's um, remind people in line. So, like, note just because of the number of people who use the products. And the level of nuance around each of the controls, I think the vast majority of, um, of that education, I think needs to happen in the product. But I do think that through conversations like this and, and others that, you know, we, we need to be doing I think we can create a broader awareness that those things exist. So that way, at least people are primed. So that way, when those things pop up in the product, people are like, oh yeah, like I, I knew that there was this control and like, here's, here's like how I would use that.
0: Like I find the restrict function to be very useful um, more than the block function. In most cases I've, I do sometimes have to block people, but the restrict function is really useful that you could filter specific comments. You, You know, someone might have a, you might recognize that someone has a tendency to be a little aggressive. And I should point out that I actually don't really mind what people say to me, but I try and maintain what I call classroom rules in, my comment section where I don't like people attacking other people because I would never tolerate that in the university classroom. I'm not going to tolerate that in the comment section, for instance.
1: Yeah. And I think that the example that you just, you just used about restrict versus block gets to something about product design. That's important too, which is that block is sort of this very powerful tool that if someone is giving you a hard time and you just want them to disappear from the experience, you can do it. But the design trade off with that is that in order to make it so that the person is just gone from the experience um, and that they, you don't show up to them, they don't show up to you, um, inherent to that is that they will have a sense that you blocked them. And that's why I think some stuff like restrict or just filtering, like I, I just don't want to see as much stuff about this topic. Um, you know, people like using different tools for very subtle reasons, right? I mean, maybe um, maybe you want the content to not show up, um, but you don't want the person who's posting the content to know that you don't want it to show up. Um, maybe you don't want to get the messages in your main inbox, but you don't want to tell the person that you like that you actually you know you're that you're not friends or something like that. Um I mean, you you actually need to give people different tools that have different levels of of kind of power and nuance around how the social dynamics around using them play out um, in order to really allow people to tailor the experience in the ways that they want
0: in terms of, trying to limit total amount of time on social media. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't find really good data on this. Um, You know, how much time is too much? I mean, I I think it's going to depend on what one is looking at, the age of the user, et cetera. But I I, I know that you have tools that cue uh, the user to how long they've been on Mm -hmm. a given platform. Are there tools to self regulate like I'm thinking about like the the Greek myth of the sirens and you know people you know tying themselves to the mast and covering their eyes so that they're not drawn in by the sirens is there a function aside from deleting the app temporarily and then reinstalling it every every time you want to use it again is there a true lockout self lockout function where one can lock themselves out of access to the app
1: well I think we give people tools that let them manage this and 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 there's the tools that you get to use and then there's the tools that the parents get to use mm-hmm. Um, to basically see how, how the usage works. But yeah, I think that there's, there's different kind of, and you know, I think for now we've mostly focused on you know helping people understand this and then you know give people reminders and things like that. Um, it's tough though to answer the question that you were talking about before this, of is there an amount of time which is too much? Because it does really get to what you're doing. But right? if you fast forward beyond just the apps that we have today to an experience that, it's like a social experience in the future of the augmented reality glasses or something that, that we're building. A lot of this is going to be, you know, you're interacting with people um, in the way that you would physically, as if you were kind of like hanging out with friends or working with people. Um, but now they can show up as holograms and you can feel like you're present right there with them, uh, no matter where they actually are. And the question is, is there too much time to spend interacting with people like that? Well, at the limit, if we can get that experience to be kind of as rich and giving you as good of a sense of presence um, as you would have if you were physically there with someone, then I don't see why you would want to restrict the amount that people use that technology to any less than what would be the you know amount of time that you'd be comfortable interacting with people physically. Um, which obviously is not going to be 24 hours a day. You have to do other stuff. Um, You you have work, you need to sleep, but I I think it really gets to kind of how you're using these things. Whereas if what you're primarily using the services for is to, you know, you're getting stuck in loops, reading, you know, news or something that is really kind of getting you into a negative mental state, then I don't know. I mean, I think that there's probably a relatively short period of time that maybe that's kind of a good thing that you want to be doing. Um, but again, even then it's not zero, right? Because it's, it's, you know, just because news might make you unhappy doesn't mean that the answer is to be unaware of negative things that are happening in the world. I just think that there's like different people have different tolerances for what they can take on that. And I think we, you know, it's generally having some awareness is probably good as long as it's not more than you're kind of constitutionally able to take. So I don't know. Uh, try to not be too paternalistic about this as our approach, but we want to empower people by giving them the tools, both people and if you're a teen, your parents, to have tools to understand what you're experiencing and, and what the um, and how you're using these things, and then and then go from there.
0: Yeah, I think it requires of all of us some degree of self-regulation. I like this idea of not being too paternalistic. I mean, that's uh, it seems like the right way to go. I find myself occasionally having to make sure that I'm not just passively scrolling, that I'm learning. I, I like forging for organizing yeah. and dispersing information. That's been my, my, my life's career. Mm-hmm. So I, I've learned so much from social media. I find great papers, great ideas. I think comments are a great source of feedback. And I'm not just saying that because you're sitting here. I mean, Instagram in particular, but other meta platforms have been tremendously helpful for me to get science and health information out. One of the things that I'm really excited about, which I only had the chance to try for the first time today, is your new uh, VR platforms, the, the newest Oculus. Um, and, when, and then we can talk about the glasses, the Ray-Bans. Um, sure. Those are still, th- that those two experiences are still kind of blowing my mind, especially the the um, the the Ray-Ban glasses. And I, I have so many questions about this, so I'll resist, but- um, We can I, get I, into that. Okay, well, yeah, I have some experience with VR. My lab has used VR. Um, Jeremy Bailenson's lab at, at um, Stanford is one of the pioneering labs of VR and and mixed reality. I guess some they used to call it augmented reality, but now mixed reality. I think what's so striking about the VR that um, you guys uh, had me try today is how well it interfaces with the with the real room. Let's call it the mm-hmm. the physical room. Physical. I, I could still see people. I could see where the furniture was, so I did, wasn't going to bump into anything. I could see people's smiles. I could see my my um, my water on the table while I was doing this what felt like a real martial arts experience, except I wasn't getting hit, uh, well, I was getting hit virtually, but it's extremely engaging. And yet it, on the good side of things, it really bypasses a lot of the early concerns that and lab, again, uh, Jeremy's lab, was early to say that, oh, you know, there's a limit to how much VR one can or should use each day, um, even for the adult brain, because it can really disrupt your um, vestibular system, your sense of balance. All of that seems to have been dealt with in this new this new iteration of VR. Like we didn't come out of it feeling dizzy at all. I didn't feel like I was re-entering the room mm-hmm. in a way that was really mm-hmm. jarring. Yeah. Going into it is obviously, is, whoa, this is a different world. But you can look, look to your left and say, oh, someone just came in the door. Hey, how's it going? Hold on. I'm playing this game just as it was when I was a kid playing a Nintendo and someone would walk in. It's fully engrossing, but you'd be like, hold on, and you see they're there. So first of all, um, bravo. Um, incredible. Um and then the Next question is, you know, what is this, what do we even call this experience? Because it it is truly mixed. It's a truly mixed reality experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, mixed reality is sort of the umbrella term that refers to the combined experience of virtual and augmented reality. So augmented reality is, you know, what you're eventually going to get with, you know, some future version of the smart glasses where you're primarily seeing the world, right? But but you can put holograms in it, right? So I think that will have a you know future where you're gonna walk into a room and there are gonna be like as many holograms as as physical objects. Right. If you just think about like all the paper, the kind of art, physical games, media, your workstation. If any we screen. refer to
0: let's say an MMA fight we could just draw it up on the table right here
1: and just yeah. see it repeat, as yeah. opposed to us turning and looking at a screen. Yeah, I mean pretty much yeah. any screen that exists could be a hologram in the future with smart glasses. Right? There's nothing that actually physically needs to be there for that when you have glasses that can put um, a hologram there. And, and it's an interesting thought experiment to just go around and think about, okay, what of the things that are physical in the world need to actually be physical? And your chair does, right? Cause you're sitting on it. A hologram isn't going to support you, but I uh, like that art on the wall. I mean, that doesn't need to physically be there. I mean, um, so I, I think that that's, that's sort of the augmented reality experience that we're moving towards. And then we've had these headsets that historically we think about as VR, and that has been something that kind of, it's like a fully immersive experience, but now we're kind of getting something that's a hybrid in between the two and capable of both, which is a headset that can do both virtual reality and some of these augmented reality experiences. And I think that that's really powerful, um, both because you're gonna get new applications that, that kind of allow people to collaborate together. And um, you know maybe the two of us are here physically, but you know, someone joins us and it's their avatar there or maybe you know it's some version in the future like we're having a you know you're having a team meeting and you have some people there physically and you have some people dialing in and they're basically like a hologram there virtually but then you also have some ai is that uh, personas that are on your team that are helping you do different things and they can be embodied as avatars and around the table meeting with you are people so, going
0: to be doing first dates that are uh, physically separated i could imagine that some people would is it even worth leaving the house type date and then they find out and then they meet for the first time
1: um uh, i mean in, maybe yeah. i think i think you Know, I dating has you know, physical aspects to it too. So, right. I think that And that's, some people might some, not
0: be they want to know whether or not it's worth the effort to head out to what we not, um,
1: you know, it, it they is want possible. to breach the divide, right? It is possible. I mean, I know like a, a some of my friends who are dating basically you know, say that in order to make sure that they have like a safe experience, and when they're if they're going on a first date, they'll schedule something that's like shorter and maybe in the middle of the day, like so maybe it's coffee. So that way if they don't like the person, they can just kind of get out before like going and scheduling a dinner or like a real full date. So I don't know, maybe in the future people will, will kind of have that experience where you can feel like you're kind of sitting there and it's, and it's even easier and lighter weight and safer. And if you're not having a good experience, you can just like teleport out of there and be gone. Um, but yeah, I think that this will be an interesting question in the future is, um, there are clearly a lot of things that are only possible physically, that or are so much better physically. And then there are all these things that we're building up that can be digital experiences, but it's this weird artifact of kind of how this stuff has been developed that the digital world and the physical world exist in these like completely different planes. Where you want to interact with the digital world, well, we do it all the time, but we pull out a small screen, or we have a big screen, and it's just basically we're interacting with the digital world through these screens. But... I think if we fast forward, you know, a decade or more, it's, I think one of the really interesting questions about what, like, what is the world that we're going to live in? I think it's going to increasingly be this mesh of the physical and digital worlds that will allow us to feel, A, that the the world that we're in is just a lot richer because there can be all these things that people create that are just so much easier to do digitally than, than physically. Um, but at, at B, you're going to have, a real kind of physical sense of presence with these things and not feel like interacting in the digital world is taking you away from the physical world, which today is just so much viscerally richer and more powerful. Um, I think the the digital world will sort of be embedded in the in that and um and and will feel kind of just as vivid in a lot of ways. So that's why I always think you know when you were saying before, you know you felt like you could look around and see the real room. I actually think that there's an interesting kind of philosophical distinction between the real room and the physical room, Um, which, you know, historically, I think people would have said those are the same thing. But I actually think in the future, the real room is going to be the combination of the physical world with all the digital artifacts and objects that are in there that you can interact with them and feel present, whereas the physical world is just the part that's physically there. And I think it's possible to build a real world that's the sum of these two that will actually be, you know, a more profound experience than what we have today.
0: I was struck by the smoothness of the interface between the VR and the physical room. Uh, your team had me try a—I um, guess it was an exercise class in the form of a book. It was like essentially like hitting mitts, boxing, so hitting yeah. targets, boxing. Supernatural. Yeah, and 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 it comes at a fairly fast pace that then picks up. It's got some tutorial. It's very easy to use, and certainly got my heart rate up. I'm in at least decent shape, um, yeah. and. I have to be honest. I've never once desired to do any of these on-screen fitness things. I mean, I can't think of anything more aversive than a, like like a clap like, like. I don't want to insult any particular products, um, but like riding a stationary bike while looking at a screen, pretending I'm on a road outside. I can't think of anything worse for me
1: um maybe only- i do like the leaderboard okay maybe i'm yeah. just a very competitive person it's like if you're gonna be running on a treadmill <laughs> yeah at least give me a leaderboard yeah. so i can beat the people who are ahead of me i like
0: moving outside and and certainly an exercise class or aerobics class as they used to call them but what the experience i tried today was extremely engaging um and, and i've done enough boxing to at least know how to to do, do a little bit of it and I really enjoyed it. it gets your heart rate up and you i completely forgot that i was doing an, an on-screen experience because in part because I believe I was still in that physical room. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's something about the mesh of the physical room and the virtual experience that um, makes it neither of one world or the other. I mean, I really felt at the interface of those and, and certainly got presence, this feeling of forgetting that I was in a virtual experience. And um, got my heart rate up pretty quickly. We had to stop because we were going to start recording. But I would do that for a good 45 minutes in the morning. And, yeah. and, and y- there's no amount of money you could pay me truly to uh, look at a screen while pedaling on a bike or running on a treadmill. So, um, again, bravo. I think it's going to be very useful. It's going to get people yeah. moving their bodies more, which certainly social media up until now and a lot of technologies have been accused of limiting the amount of physical activity that that both children and adults are engaged in. So, And we know we need physical activity. You're a big mm-hmm. proponent of, and practitioner yeah, totally. of physical activity. So yeah. is this a major goal of Meta? Get people moving their bodies more and getting their heart rates up and, and so on?
1: I think we want to enable it and I, I think it's good, but I, I think it comes more from like a philosophical view of the world than it is Necessarily. I mean, I don't go into building products to try to shape people's behavior, right? I, I believe in empowering people to you know, do what they want and be the best version of themselves that they can be. So, no agenda. That said, I, I do believe that you know, I think there's the, the previous generation of computers were devices for your mind. And I think that we are not brains in tanks. Um, you know, it's uh, like I think that there's sort of a, a philosophical view of people of like, okay, you you are primarily you know what you think about or your values or something. It's like no, it, you are that, and you are a physical manifestation. And uh, people are, were very physical. And I think building a computer for your whole body and not just for your mind is very fitting with this worldview that like the actual essence of you, if you want to be present with another person, if you want to like be fully engaged in experience is not just, okay, it's not just a video conference call that looks at your face and where you can like share ideas. Um, it's, it's something that, that you can engage your whole body. So yeah, I, I mean, I think being physical is very important to me. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's it just a, that's a lot of, you know, the most fun stuff that I get to do. Um, it's a really important part of how I personally balance my energy levels and just get a diversity of experiences because I could spend all my time running the company. Um, but I think it's good for people to do some different things and, you know, compete in different areas or learn different things. And all of that, um, is good. If, if people want to, you know, do really intense workouts with, um, with the work that we're doing with quest or with, um, you know, eventual AR glasses, great. But even if you don't want to do a, like a really intense workout, I think just having a computing environment and platform, which is inherently physical, captures more of the essence of what we are as people than any of the previous computing platforms that we've had to date. Yeah, I was even thinking just of the um,
0: simple task of getting
1: a uh, better range of
0: motion, aka flexibility. Yeah. I could imagine inside of the VR yeah. experience, you know, leaning into a stretch, you know, standard kind of like like a lunge type stretch, but actually seeing a meter of like, are you get are you approaching new levels of flexibility in that moment? Absolutely. Where it's actually measuring some some kinesthetic uh, elements on the body and the joints. And I mean, I was just trying, whereas normally you might have to do that in front of a camera, which then would give you the data on a screen that you'd look at afterwards or hire an expensive coach. But so, or looking at um, form and resistance training, Mm -hmm. so you're actually lifting physical weights, but Mm -hmm. it's telling you whether or not you're breaking form. I mean, there's just so much that could be done inside of there. And then my mind just starts to spiral into like, wow, this is very likely to transform what we think of as quote unquote exercise.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think there's still a bunch of questions that need to get answered. Um, You know, I I don't think most people are going to necessarily want to install, you know, a lot of sensors or cameras to track their whole body so we're just over time getting better from the sensors that are on the headsets of being able to do very good hand tracking right so we we have this research demo where you now just with the hand tracking um, from the headset you can type it just projects a little keyboard onto your table and you can type and people like type like 100 words a minute with that with a virtual um, keyboard yeah we're starting to be able to um using some modern AI techniques be able to like simulate and understand where your torso's position is. Um, even though you can't always see it, you can see it a bunch of the time. And if you fuse together what you do see um, with like the accelerometer and understanding how the thing is moving, you can kind of understand what the body position is going to be. Um, but some things are still going to be hard, right? So you, know, you mentioned boxing. Um, that one works pretty well because you know we understand your head position. We understand your hands. Um, and, and now we're, we're kind of increasingly understanding your, your body position. Um, but let's say you want to expand that to um, Muay Thai or kickboxing. Okay, so legs, that's a different part of tracking. That's harder because um, that's out of the field of view more of the time. But there's also the element of resistance, right? So you can throw a punch and retract it and shadow box and you know, do that um, without upsetting your kind of physical balance that much. But if you want to throw a roundhouse kick um, and there's no one there... Then, I mean, you know the standard way that you do it when you're shadow boxing is you basically do a little three sixty. But like I don't know, is that is that gonna feel great? I mean, i, I think that there's a question about what that what that experience should be. Um, and then if you want to go even further, if you want to get like grappling um to to work, um i'm I'm not even sure how you would do that without having resistance of understanding what the forces applied to you would be. and just then you get into, okay, maybe you're gonna have some kind of bodysuit that can apply. You know haptics, but I'm not even sure that that even a pretty advanced haptic system is going to be able to be quite good enough to do to simulate like the actual forces that would be applied to you um, in a grappling scenario. So this is part of what's fun about technology, though, is you get you keep on getting new capabilities, and then you need to figure out what things you can do with them. So I think it's really neat that we can kind of do boxing and we can do this supernatural thing, and um, there's a bunch of awesome cardio and dancing and things like that. Um, and then there's also still so much more to do that, that I'm excited to to kind of get to over time, but, um, but it's, a, it's a long journey. And what about things like um, painting
0: and art and music? Yeah. You know, I imagine, um, you know, of course, you, you know, like different mediums, like I like to draw with pen and pencil, but I could imagine trying to learn how to paint and virtually. And of course, you could print out a physical version of that at the end this doesn't have to depart from the physical world it could end in the physical world did
1: you see the demo the the piano demo where you um, either you're there with a physical keyboard or it could be a virtual keyboard but the app basically highlights what keys you need to press um, in order to play the song so it's basically like you're looking at your piano and it's teaching you how to play a song that you choose an actual piano yeah, yeah,
0: but it's illuminating certain keys in in the virtual space.
1: Yeah, and it could either be a virtual piano if you, or keyboard if you don't have a piano or keyboard, or it could use your actual keyboard. Um, so, yeah, um, I think stuff like that is going to be really fascinating for education and expression, um,
0: and for broad. Excuse me, but for, and for broadening access to totally. expensive equipment. I mean, piano is is no small expense. Exactly, um, it's and it takes up a lot of space. It needs yeah. to be tuned. Yeah. Um, you can think of all these things like the, the kid that has very little income or their family has very little income could learn to play a virtual piano at much lower totally.
1: cost. Yeah. And it gets back to the question I was asking before about this thought experiment of how many of the things that we physically have today actually need to be physical. The piano doesn't. Um, maybe there's some premium where it's maybe it's a somewhat better, more tactile, tactile experience to have a physical one. But for people who don't have the space for it, or who who can't afford to to buy a piano, or just aren't sure that they would want to make that investment at the beginning of learning how to play piano, I think in the future you'll have the option of just buying, you know, an app or a hologram piano, which will be you know, a lot more affordable. Um, and I, don't know, I think it's going to be that's going to be unlock unlock a ton of creativity too, because I mean, instead of the market for piano makers being constrained to like a relatively small set of experts who have, like, perfected that craft. And you're going to have, like, you know, kids or developers all around the world designing crazy designs for um, potential keyboards and pianos that look nothing like what we've seen before, but are maybe, like, bring even more joy and are even more kind of fun in the world where you have fewer of these physical constraints. So, I don't know. I, I think it's going uh, to be a lot of wild stuff to explore.
0: There's definitely going to be a yeah. lot of wild stuff to explore. I was just had this, uh, this idea... Slash um, image in my mind of what you were talking about merged with our earlier conversation when Priscilla was here. Of you know, I could imagine a time not too far, long from now where you're using mixed reality to run experiments in the lab, literally mixing virtual solutions, getting potential outcomes, and then picking yeah. the best one to then go actually do in the real world, which is very both um, financially costly and and
1: um, time wise costly. Yeah, I mean, people are already using VR for surgery and education on it. Um, and there's some study that was done that um, basically did, it, it tried to do a controlled experiment of people who learned how to do a specific surgery um, through just a normal kind of textbook and lecture method versus like you show the knee and you you have it, you know, be a, a large blown up model and people can manipulate it and and kind of practice where they would make you know, the cuts. And, and like the people in that class did better. So um, I, I think that there's, yeah, it's I, I think that the, it's going to be profound for a lot of different areas.
0: Mm. And the last um, example that leaps to mind, you know, I think uh, social media and online culture has been accused of creating a lot of um, real world, let's call it physical world, social anxiety for people. But I could imagine um, practicing a social interaction or a kid that has a lot of social anxiety or, or that needs to advocate yeah. for themselves better, learning how to do that progressively through a virtual interaction and then taking that to the real world because it's, in my very recent experience today, it's so blended now yeah. with, with real experience that the kid that feels terrified of advocating for themselves or, or just talking to another human being or an adult or being in a new circumstance of a room full of kids, you could really experience that in, in silico first and get comfortable, let the nervous system attenuate a bit and then take it into the quote unquote physical world.
1: Yeah, I think we'll see experiences like that I mean, I also think that some of the social dynamics around how people interact in this kind of blended digital world will be more nuanced in other ways. So I'm sure that there will be kind of new anxieties that people develop to just like, you know, teens today need to navigate dynamics around texting constantly that, um, that we just didn't have when we were kids, um, so I think it will help with some things. I think that there will be new issues that hopefully we can help people work through too. But um, but overall, I think yeah, no, I think it's going to be really powerful and positive. Let's talk about the glasses. Sure. This was wild. Yeah.
0: I put on a pair of Ray-Bans. I like the way they look. They're clear. They look like any other glass mm-hmm. Ray-Ban glasses, um, except that I could call out to the glasses. I could just say, you know, hey Meta, um, I want to listen to the Bach variations. The Goldberg Variations of Bach and Meta responded and no one around me could hear, but Mm -hmm. I could hear Mm -hmm. um, with exquisite clarity. And by the way, I'm not getting paid to say any of this. I'm just still blown away by this, (laughs) folks. um, I want a pair of these very badly. I could hear, okay, I'm selecting those now and or that that music now, and then I could hear it in the background, but then I could still have a conversation. So this was neither headphones in nor headphones out. and I could say, wait, pause the music, and it would pause. Um, and the best part was I didn't have to "quote unquote" leave the room mentally. Yeah, and I didn't even have to yeah. take out a phone. It yeah. was just it was all interfaced through this very local environment in and around the head. And as a neuroscientist, I'm fascinated by this because, of course, all of our perceptions, auditory, visual, etc., mm-hmm. all are occurring in the, inside the casing of this of this thing we call a skull. But um, Maybe you could comment on, you know, the, the origin of that design for you, you know, what the ideas behind that and, and where you think it could go, because I'm sure I'm just scratching the surface.
1: The real product that we want to eventually get to is this kind of full augmented reality product in a kind of stylish and comfortable, normal glasses form factor. Not dorky and- VR headset, so to speak.
0: No, I mean. Because the I, VR headset does feel kind
1: of like a like but, but thing on the face. There's going to be a place for that too, just like you have your laptop and you have your workstation. Um, or maybe the better analogy is you have your phone and you have your workstation. Um, these AR glasses are going to be like your phone in that you, know, you have something on your face and you will, I think, be able to, if you want, wear it for a lot of the day and interact with, with, um, with it very frequently. I don't think that people are going to be you know walking around the world wearing VR headsets. Let's hope but not. yeah, that's that's certainly not the future that that I'm that I'm kind of hoping we we get to. But I do think that there is a place where um for having you know because it's a bigger form factor, it has more compute power. So just like your workstation or your your kind of bigger computer can do more than your phone can do, um there's a place for that when you want to settle into an intense task. Right, if you have a doctor who's doing a surgery, I would want them doing it through the headset, not through the kind of not through their phone equivalent or the, the just kind of lower powered glasses, but just like phones are powerful enough to do a lot of things, and the glasses will eventually get there too. Um, now that said, there's a bunch of really hard technology problems um, to address in order to be able to get to this point where you can like put kind of full holograms in the world. You're basically miniaturizing a supercomputer and putting it into a pair of glasses um, so that the pair of glasses still look stylish and normal. And um, that's a really hard technology problem. Making things small is really hard. Um, a holographic display is, you know, it's it's different from what our industry has optimized for for, you know, 30 or 40 years now, building screens. There's like a whole kind of industrial process around that that goes into phones and TVs and computers and like increasingly so many things that that have different screens like there's a whole pipeline that's gotten very good at making that kind of screen and the holographic displays are just a completely different thing right because it's not it's not a screen right it's a thing that you can shoot light into through you know a laser or some other kind of projector and it can place that as an object in the world so that's going to need to be this whole other industrial process that gets built up to doing that like in an efficient way so all that said we're basically taking two different approaches towards building this at once. One is we are trying to keep in mind what is the the long term thing that you know, it's not super far off. I think within you know a few years, I think we'll have something that that's sort of a first version of kind of this full vision that I'm talking about. I and mean, we have something that's working internally that we is like a that we we'll use as a dev kit, um, but that one that's that's kind of a big challenge it's going to be more expensive um and it's harder to get all the pieces working the other approach has been all right let's start with what we know we can put into um a pair of stylish sunglasses today and just make them as smart as we can so you know for the first version you know we we worked with um we, we did this collaboration with ray-ban right because that's like Well accepted, you know, these are well-designed glasses. They're classic people have have used them for decades for the first version We got a sensor on the front so you could capture moments without having to take your phone out of your pocket so you got photos and videos Um, You had the speaker and the microphone so you can listen to music Um, You could communicate with it Uh, but it was You know that was that was sort of the, the first version of it We had a lot of the basics there, but we saw how people used it and we tuned it. We made the the camera is like twice as good for for this new version that we made. The audio is a lot crisper for the use cases that we saw that people actually used, which is some of it is listening to music, but a lot of it is like people want to take calls on their glasses. Um, they don't want to listen to podcasts, right? You, um, but the the biggest thing that I think is interesting is the ability to get AI running on it, which it it doesn't just run on the on the glasses. It also it it kind of proxies through your phone, but. I mean, with all the advances in LLMs, and we talked about this a bit in the, in the first part of, of the, the conversation, um, having the ability to have your meta AI assistant that you can just talk to and basically ask any question throughout the day is, I think, going to be really fascinating. And, you know, like you were saying about kind of how we, how we process the world as people, um, eventually I think you're going to want your AI assistant to be able to see what you see and hear what you hear. Maybe not all the time, but you're going to want to be able to tell it to go into a mode where it can see what you see and hear what you hear. And what's the kind of device design that best kind of positions an AI assistant to be able to see what you see and hear what you hear so it can best help you? Well, that's glasses, right? Where where it basically has a sensor to be able to see what you see and um, a microphone that is close to your ears that can hear what you hear. Um, the other design goals is like you said, to keep you present in the world, right? So I think one of the issues with phones is they kind of pull you away from, from what's physically happening around you. And I don't think that the next generation of computing will do that. Um, I just, I'm chuckling to myself because I have a friend, he's a very well-known photographer and he was
0: laughing about how, you know, people go to a concert and everyone's filming the concert on uh-huh. their phone so yeah. that they can be the person that posts the thing, but like there are literally millions of other people who posted the exact same thing, but somehow our unique experience, it feels important to post our unique experience with glasses that would uh, essentially uh, smooth that um, gap um, completely. Yeah, totally. Um, you could just worry about it later, download yeah, yeah. it. There, there are issues I, I realize with with glasses because they are so seamless with everyday experience, even though you and I aren't wearing them now, it's very common for people to wear glasses. Um, uh, issues of recording and consent. Yeah, right? that's like where if we have I go, in, I go into the, a locker room at my gym, that's right? we've. I'm assuming that the people with glasses aren't filming. Whereas when right now, because there's a, a sharp transition when it, when there's a phone in yeah. the room and someone's pointing it, um, people generally say no no phones in locker rooms and recording yeah. um so that's just one instance i mean there are other instances but we have the whole privacy yeah. light i
1: don't know mm-hmm. did you did you get a I chance, didn't get to, a chance do to explore that yeah, yeah so it's anytime that it's active that the camera sensor is active um it's it's basically like pulsing a white bright light got it so which is by the way more than cameras do uh, right phones, someone right? be holding like, a, f- a yeah, phone yeah i mean, on the I mean right. phones aren't aren't kind of showing a light a bright sensor when, when you're taking a photo. So no people oftentimes will
0: pretend they're texting and they're actually recording. I actually saw an instance of this in a barbershop once where someone was recording and they were pretending that they were texting and there was yeah, an in, interesting. It was a pretty intense interaction that ensued and it was like, wow, you know, it's pretty easy for people to, to feign texting while actually recording.
1: Yeah. So I think when you're evaluating a risk with a new technology, the bar shouldn't be, is it possible to do anything bad? It's does this new technology make it easier to do something bad than what people already had? And I think because you have this privacy light that is just broadcasting to everyone around you, hey, this thing is recording now. um, I think that that makes it actually less discreet to do it through the glasses than what you could do with a phone already, um, which I think is, is basically the bar that we wanted to get over from a design perspective.
0: Thank you for pointing out that it has the privacy light. I didn't get long enough in the experience to explore all the features. But um, again, I can think of a lot of uses, um, being able to look at a restaurant from the outside and see the menu. Oh yeah. um, Get status on how crowded it is. Um, As much as I love, uh, I don't wanna call out, let's just say um, app-based map uh, functions that allow you to navigate and the audio is okay. It's nice to have a conversation um, with somebody on the phone or in the vehicle and just be, it'd be great if the road was traced where I should turn. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, these kinds of things seem like it, it's going to be straightforward for, for meta engineers yeah, to create. Yeah, some
1: future version, we'll have it so it'll also have the holographic display where it can show you the directions. But I, I think that there will just basically just be you know, different price points that pack different amounts of technology. The holographic display part, I think, is going to be more expensive than doing one that just has the AI but is um, but is primarily communicating you w- with you through audio. So I mean, the the current ray Meta glasses are two ninety nine. Um, you know, I think when we have one that has a display in it, it'll probably be some amount more than that, but it'll also be more powerful. So I think that it'll, people will choose what they want to use based on what the capabilities are that they want and what they can afford. But um, but a lot of our goal in building things is. Um, you know we try to make things that can be accessible to everyone. Um, you know our game as a company isn't to build things and then charge a premium price for it. We try to build things that then everyone can use um, and then become more useful because a very large number of people are using them. Um, so it's just a very different approach. Um you know we're not we're not like apple or or uh, some of these companies that just try to make something and then sell it for as much um as, as as they can, which I mean, it's, it's, they're a great company. So I mean, I think that 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 model kind of is is fine too. but um but our, our approach is gonna be we, we want stuff that can be affordable so that way everyone in the world can use it. Long lines of health, I think the glasses will
0: also potentially solve a major problem in a in a real way, which is the following. Uh, for both children and adults, it's very clear that viewing objects in particular screens up close for too many hours per day leads to myopia. Cha- mm-hmm. li- yeah. literally a change in the length in, uh, length of the eyeball and nearsightedness. Yep. Um, and on the positive side, we know based on some really large clinical trials um, that kids who spend, and adults who spend two hours a day or more out of doors, um, Don't experience that and maybe even reverse their myopia and it has something to do with exposure to sunlight but it has a lot to do with long viewing viewing things at a distance greater than three or four feet away Mm -hmm. and with the glasses i realize one could actually do digital work out of doors Um, it could measure and tell you how much time you've spent looking at things up close versus far away i mean this is this is just another example that leaps to mind but in in accessing the visual system, you're effectively accessing the whole brain because it's the only two bits of brain that are outside the cranial vault. So it just seems like putting technology right at the level of the eyes, seeing what the eyes see, mm-hmm. is just got to be the best way to go.
1: Yeah, I think, well, multimodal, right, I, I think is you want the visual sensation, but you also want kind of text or language. So sure. I, I think it's- but that it's, all can be
0: brought to the level of the eyes,
1: Right. What do you mean by well, that? Well, I
0: mean, I think what we're describing here is essentially taking the phone, the computer, um, and bringing it all to the level of the eyes. And of course, one would like well, more- Physically at your Physically face. at yeah, your yeah, eyes, right? Yeah. And one would like more um, kinesthetic information, as you mentioned yeah. before, where the legs are, maybe even lung function. Hey, have you taken enough steps today? But, yeah. but that all can be, if it can be figured out on the phone, it can be by the phone, it can be figured out by yeah, glasses. Right. Um, but there's additional information there, such as, what are you focusing on in your world? How much of your time yeah. is spent looking at things far away versus up close? How much social time did you have today? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's really tricky to get that with a phone. Like like if my phone were right in front of us as if we were at a standard lunch nowadays, certainly yeah. in Silicon Valley, and then we're peering at our phones. I mean, how much yeah. real direct attention was in the conversation at hand versus something else? I mean, you can get issues of where are you placing your attention? Um, by virtue of where you're placing your eyes. And I think that information is not accessible with a phone in your pocket or in front of you. I mean, a little bit, um, but not nearly as rich and complete information as one gets when you're really pulling the data from the level of of vision and what what kids and adults are actually looking at and attending to.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, So it seems
0: extremely valuable. Um, you get autonomic information size of the pupils mm-hmm. so you get information about internal
1: states i mean that you well, can't there's, the, there's internal sensor and outside so there's the sensor on the ray-ban metaglasses is external right so it's basically allows you to see what you see then uh it, it allows the, sorry the ai assistant to see what you're seeing there's a separate set of things which are eye tracking mm-hmm. um which uh, are also very powerful um for enabling a lot of interfaces Right so you want if you want to just like look at something and select it by looking at it with your eyes rather than having to kind of drag a controller over or, or pick up a hologram or or anything like that, you can do that with eye tracking um so that's a pretty profound and and cool experience too um, as well as just kind of understanding what you're looking at so that way you're not kind of wasting compute power drawing pixels with in high resolution in a part of the kind of world that you're not, that's going to be in your peripheral vision. Um, so yeah, all of these things, um, there are interesting design and technology trade-offs where if you want the external sensor, that's one thing. If you also want the eye tracking, um, now that's a different set of sensors, each one of these um, consumes compute, which consumes battery. Um, they take up more space, right? So it's like, where are the eye tracking sensors going to be? It's like, well, you want to make sure that the rim of the glasses is, Actually, quite thin because, I mean, it's you know there's a kind of variance of you know how thick can glasses be before they look more like goggles than glasses. Um, I think that this is there's this whole space, and I think people are going to end up choosing what product makes sense for them. Maybe they want something that's more powerful that has more of the sensors, um, but it's but it's going to be a little more expensive. Maybe like slightly thicker, Um, or maybe you want like a more basic thing that just looks like very similar to what Ray-Ban glasses are that people have been wearing for decades but kind of has AI in it and you can capture moments um, without having to take your phone out and send them to people. In the latest version, we got the ability in to li- live stream. I think that that's pretty crazy that now you can be kind of you know, going back to your concert case or you know, whatever else you're doing. You know, you can be um, you know, doing sports and, and just, you know, or watching your kids play something and, and just, you could be watching and you could be live streaming it to your, your kind of family group. Um, so people can see it. I, I think that like that stuff is, um, I, I think that's pretty cool that you basically have a normal looking pair of glasses at this point that can kind of live stream and, and has like an AI assistant. So the, the stuff is making a lot faster progress in a lot of ways than I would have thought. Um, And I don't know, I think people are gonna like this version, but there's a lot more still to do. I think it's super
0: exciting. And I see a lot of technologies. This one's particularly exciting to me because of how smooth the interface is and for all the reasons that you just mentioned. Um, What's happening with and what can we expect around AI interfaces and maybe even avatars of people within social media? Are we um, not far off from a day where there are multiple versions of me Uh, and you on the internet where people, for instance, I get asked a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. I don't have the opportunity to respond to all those questions, but um, with things like ChatGPT, people are trying to generate answers to those questions on other platforms. Will I have the opportunity to soon have an AI version of myself where people can ask me questions about like what I recommend for sleep and circadian rhythm, fitness, mental health, et cetera, based on content I've already generated that will be accurate so they could just ask my avatar?
1: Yeah, uh, this is something that I think a lot of creators are going to want that, um, that we're trying to build. Um, and I think we'll probably have a version of next year. But there's a bunch of constraints that I think we need to make sure that we get right. So for one, I think it's really important that it's not that there's a bunch of versions of you. It's that if anyone is creating like an AI assistant version of you, it should be something that you control. Right. it's um I think there are some platforms that are out there today that just let people like you know make I don't know the AI bot of me or, or other figures and it's like I, I don't know I mean we we have platform policies for um, know, for like decades uh, like you know if, since the beginning of the company at this point which is almost 20 years that um, that basically don't allow impersonation. Um, you know, real identity is like one of the core aspects that that kind of our company was was started on is like you want to kind of authentically be yourself. So, um, yeah, I, I think if you're if you're almost any creator, being able to engage your community and, and there's just going to be more demand to interact with you than you have hours in the day. So there are both people who out there who would benefit from being able to talk to an AI version of you um, and I think you and other creators would benefit from being able to keep your community engaged and and service that demand that people have to engage with you. But you're going to want to know that that AI kind of version of you or assistant um, is going to represent you the way that you would want. And um, there are a lot of things that are awesome about kind of these modern LLMs, but having perfect predictability about how it's going to represent something is not one of the current strengths. So I think that there's some work that needs to get done there. I don't think it needs to be 100% perfect all of the time, but you need to have very good confidence, I would say, that it's going to gonna represent you the way that you'd want for you to want to turn it on, um, which, again, you should have control over whether you turn it on. Um, so we wanted to start in a different place, which I think is a somewhat um, easier problem, which is creating new characters that the for, or AI personas. So that way it's not... Um, you know, we, we built, you know, one of the AIs is like a chef and um, they can help you kind of come up with things that you should, that you could cook and can help you cook them. Um, there's like a couple of people that are interested in different types of fitness that can help you kind of plan out your workouts or, you know, help with recovery or different things like that. Um, there are people, there's an AI that's focused on like DIY crafts. Um there's someone who's a travel expert that can help you make travel plans or, or give you ideas so but the key thing about all these is they're not um they're not modeled off of existing people, so they don't have to have kind of a hundred percent fidelity to like making sure that they never say something that you know a, a real person who they're modeled after would never say because they're just made up characters so I think that that is um that's a somewhat easier problem um you know, we actually got the we got a bunch of different kind of uh, well-known people to play those characters because we thought that would make it more fun so there's like snoop Dogg is the dungeon master so you can like drop him into a thread and play text-based games and it's just like i do this with my daughter when i when i um tuck her in at night and she just like loves it like like storytelling right and it's like it like like Snoop Dogg as the dungeon master will come up with like, here's what's happening next. And she's like, okay, I like turn into a mermaid. And then I like swim across the bay and I like go and find the the treasure chest and unlock it. And it's like, and then Snoop Dogg just always will have a next version of the, uh, like the next iteration on the story. So, I mean, it's, it's stuff is fun, but you know, it's not actually Snoop Dogg. He's just kind of the actor who's playing the dungeon master, which makes it more fun. So I mean, that's probably the right place to start is you, you have like, you, you can kind of build versions of these characters that, that people can interact with doing different things. But I think where you want to get over time is to the place where any creator or any small business can very easily just create an AI assistant that can represent them and interact with your kind of community or customers if you're a business um, and, and basically just help you grow your, your enterprise. So I don't know, I, I think that's gonna be cool, but I, I think this is, it's a long-term project. I think we'll have more progress on it to report on next year, but um, but I, I think that's coming.
0: I'm super excited about it because because have you know, we hear a lot about the downsides of AI. I mean, I think people are now coming around to the, the reality that AI is neither good nor bad. It can be used for good or bad. And that there are a lot of life enhancing spaces that it's gonna show up and really, really improve the way that uh, we engage socially, uh, what we learn and that mental health and physical health don't have to suffer and in fact can be enhanced by the sorts of technologies we've been talking about. So I know you're extremely busy. I so appreciate the um, large amount of time you've given me today to sort through all these That's things fun. and to talk with you and Priscilla and and to hear what's happening and where things are headed. Um, the future certainly is bright. I, I share in your optimism and it's been uh, only strengthened by today's conversation. So Thank you so much, and um, keep doing what you're doing. And and um, on behalf of myself and everyone listening, um, thank you. Because regardless of what people say, we all use these platforms um, excitedly, and it's clear that there's a ton of intention and care, and um, and thought about you know what could be in the positive sense, and um, and that's really worth highlighting. Awesome,
1: thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining me for today's discussion with Mark Zuckerberg and Dr. Priscilla Chan. If you're learning from and or enjoying this podcast, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's a terrific zero cost way to support us. In addition, please subscribe to the podcast on both Spotify and Apple. And on both Spotify and Apple, you can leave us up to a five-star review. Please also check out the sponsors mentioned at the beginning and throughout today's episode. That's the best way to support this podcast. If you have questions for me or comments about the podcast or guests that you'd like me to consider hosting on the Huberman Lab Podcast, please put those in the comment section on YouTube. I do read all the comments. Not during today's episode, but on many previous episodes of the Huberman Lab Podcast, we discuss supplements. While supplements aren't necessary for everybody, many people derive tremendous benefit from them for things like enhancing sleep, hormone support, and improving focus. If you'd like to learn more about the supplements discussed on the Huberman Lab podcast, you can go to Live Momentus, spelled O-U-S. So livemomentus.com slash Huberman. If you're not already following me on social media, it's Huberman Lab on all social media platforms. So that's Instagram, Twitter, now called X, Threads, Facebook, LinkedIn, And on all those places, I discuss science and science-related tools, some of which overlaps with the content of the Huberman Lab podcast, but much of which is distinct from the content on the Huberman Lab podcast. So again, it's Huberman Lab on all social media platforms. If you haven't already subscribed to our monthly Neural Network newsletter, the Neural Network newsletter is a completely zero-cost newsletter that gives you podcast summaries, as well as toolkits in the form of brief PDFs. We've had toolkits related to optimizing sleep, to regulating dopamine, deliberate cold exposure, fitness, mental health, learning, and neuroplasticity, and much more. Again, it's completely zero cost to sign up. You simply go to HubermanLab.com, go over to the menu tab, scroll down to newsletter, and supply your email. I should emphasize that we do not share your email with anybody. Thank you once again for joining me for today's discussion with Mark Zuckerberg and Dr. Priscilla Chan. And last, but certainly not least, thank you for your interest in science.